Hello and welcome to another episode of Sim Sundays. This is another one of our special audio only episodes. And this week I'm really excited because we have Nathan Take, head of sim racing at G2 Esports. Nathan's worked at Quadrant, McLaren Shadow and Veloce, which is a pretty epic lineup. He founded F4H too, so if you're a, if you're a Forza fan, you'll have heard of F4H. Um, it was an incredibly successful sim racing team and scouted out the great James Baldwin. So welcome, Nathan. Hi, Tom. Yeah, thank you for having me. Really looking forward to having a, a chat today. And as I was saying uh, off camera, um, I, I may waffle on a little bit. So bear with me, guys. Waffling, waffling is good. It's, it's a podcast, right? If there wasn't much speaking, it would be uh, trading standards would be after me. So waffle <laughs> as much as you like. Um, so you've got quite a rap sheet. I uh, remember, I think I saw you as a mutual connection with somebody on LinkedIn. I was like, oh, G2 Esports. I've heard of G2 Esports. That's cool. Head of sim racing. Perfect. I'll get in touch. And then I went through your CV and it was baffling. Every, every name is, is massive. So we're going to go on a journey and we're going to work out how the hell you got from driving Gran Turismo and Forza in your living room to doing what you're doing. And we'll kind of go step by step through it because I'm intrigued. Um, you started your racing career driving Gran Turismo and Forza while your dad was on the night shift. That's what the internet tells me anyway. And if, if that's true, it's a wholesome story. Yeah. Did you, Well, A, is it true? And B, did you ever think then that this could become a career? It's completely true. So I, I grew up, um, my dad is a massive gamer, first and foremost. So we always had a console in the house. Um, I think, you know, even when I was five, six, it was a Mega Drive. We gradually upgraded to a PlayStation, PS2. So I was always surrounded by that kind of tech. Um, and so I grew up playing games, grew up playing things like, you know, Road Rash, um, Super Monaco Grand Prix. So I was always a, a bit of a racing game fan. But funnily enough, up until that point, all I really had played is, you know, the the standard Call of Duty, anything that, you know, a, a young guy growing up plays, FIFA, things like that. I'd never really entertained racing games. And I remember my dad was, he was he was big into his racing and he was playing PGR. And there was a competition on called the Gotham 100. And I remember him pounding around this Tokyo circuit for ages. You had to get this wall bounce at turn three perfect. I remember him being really frustrated and he worked nights at Toyota at the time. And he went away for a night shift. I didn't have my own Xbox at the time. Um, and I went on his account and he got back in the morning and he was in the top 10. Um, so that's when I figured out that I was half decent at racing games um, uh, and finally made the investment to get my own console. And it kind of just went from there. That's interesting because on racinggames.gg, I think it said you were in the top 20 and it went from there. Now it's the top 10. So the next podcast or when you're on Good Morning Britain, it's oh, going to be a top five, top oh, podium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's one of those uh, as, as it gets further and further away. I mean, that was when I was 15. So almost 20 years ago now. <laughs> we can let you so, off, right? <laughs> Never let so, the truth get in the way of a really good story. Exactly. <laughs> That's what exactly. I always say. Um, so... The racing heritage that, that you have, and I know racing heritage, if you're like a purist motorsport fan, you're going to be, your skin's going to be crawling at me saying racing heritage, referring to sim racing, but deal with it. It's sim racing and we love it. That's why we're here. Um, you've got a lot of it, right? So I've spoken to a lot of people who've worked behind the scenes in sim racing, but you stood out to me as one of the very few who's managed to maintain a very respectable level of competitiveness actually racing. How the hell have you done that? Um, I, I'm not sure. Um, 
I, it's weird, isn't it? Like you, you associate gaming and and esports with the young, um, and I think you know even myself sometimes I'll look at you know certain um, you know drivers and think oh they're you know they're thirty four, thirty five, still going. Like how how are they managing it kind of thing? But I think luckily enough in our in our kind of mini sector of esports you can actually maintain a pretty decent standard for for longer you look at drivers in the real world too you know lewis is i think 36 now uh, and still you know arguably the best driver on the planet so um I, i've always enjoyed i think first and foremost driving uh, i think that's the, that's the key part and i think you know early on in my my career um i drove too much got burned out got disillusioned it's really easy uh you know when you're you're, you're competing at a decent level to do that but i think as i've gotten older i've i guess used sim racing as more of kind of a treat to make sure that i don't kind of you know get burned out and maintain something of, of a decent level and and make sure i'm still sharp so you know if ever uh, <laughs> if ever g2 come calling and one of the guys can't race i'm somewhere decent well, that's interesting, right? Because I've spoken to a few people who work in sim racing and, and, a, and a lot of the time it's the same story. And it's, this is true for me, right? In that I used to love, well, I still do love sim racing, but I used to love to the point where I race every single night and not always competitively. It'd usually be like once a week, I'd have a competitive sim racing league that I would, uh, that I would race with. Um, but then every other night I'd either be practicing for that race or I'd be trying something else or be trying a new car or I'd be exploring other leagues, etc. But then as soon as I started working full-time in sim racing, this, this, the actual sim racing kind of fell by the wayside a little bit because, I don't know, maybe, maybe at the end of a day, you've been thinking about sim racing all day or you've been kind of around sim racing all day. It, it's, it's almost like a natural feeling to be like, okay, I'm going to just take a step back from sim racing. But you haven't actually been in the rig yet, right? So have you managed to maintain a bit of a balance of being able to get in the rig quite regularly? Um, it's difficult. I think with, especially in the last few years, post COVID or, or during COVID, as things have gotten busier, um, you know, with the kind of Veloce and, and Quadrant and, and G2 jobs, especially, it's been much harder to manage. Um, I actually don't own my own sim at the moment, partly because I'm moving house, um, but partly because I, a lot of the time I just don't have time. And I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of when you're working and doing something um once you finish work you kind of don't want anything to do with it does that make sense yeah like I, I, I completely relate to that but it's kind of sad right it, it, yeah it, because, because when you do find when you do find so on sunday for example we, we had a uh, just an invitational event it was on a set of course and we did touring cars and because it was our event, I'd made time for it. And I got in the rig and I was like, oh God, I love this so much. I've missed this feeling of being in the rig, doing some practice, qualifying, chatting to people in the lobby before we started and then, you know, congratulating people and saying sorry for taking them out. And, you know, I just, I, you just miss it so much. But then when you're out of it, it's like, oh, it's just, do I have the time to, to go from sim racing work to sim racing racing? Yeah, I think I... Whenever I get back in a rig, I did a, a competition really recently when I was over at the Miami Grand Prix. And whenever I get back in a rig, it's always the same feeling like I've missed this. I need my own. I need to do more. But it's also balancing actually having time to adult and real life uh, and work <laughs> and do right. the things you enjoy, right? It's, it's uh, the, the age old conundrum of actually being a functioning adult, I think, that gets in the way a lot of the time. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. And if you um, let's say you're you've had a busy day and you fancy doing some some racing about you know when you had the rig in in the house, um, what would you what would you fire up? Is it was there a particular sim that you would jump on, or a particular car, or track, or did did you have a routine? I think um, a lot of it depended on the kind of I guess social circles that I was kind of moving in at the time. So. I think when I was kind of F4H or Lazarus, it would have been Forza or Gran Turismo because they were the main focuses. And I think um, I've been quite lucky um, that a group of friends that I went to school with, you know, way back those 20 years ago, have recently gotten into sim racing. So I've kind of been almost enjoying sim racing for the first time again through them, watching them develop, you know, um, teaching them, watching them go from being in, you know, the third tier in, in, you know, bronze leagues to moving up and, and winning their first races. So I tend to come off, you know, after a day of work, then go onto ATC and rather than drive, a lot of the time I just watch them. Uh, you know, we'd sit in a Discord call, I'd watch them, give them a bit of coaching, you're doing this, you know, or you're doing X when you should be doing Y. And, and that's how I got my sim racing enjoyment for quite a while. So, yeah, I think if I was going to pick one sim, it would be a Seto. Uh, or ACC, because I, I just think GT driving has always been a, a constant over the course of my career. It's always been pretty much a staple where I've spent most of my time, and I do enjoy faster stuff as well. But in in terms of GT3s and, and GT racing, I think ACC just does it best. There's just something about the iRacing braking that doesn't work with my brain. Mm. Um, uh, and so, yeah, it'd always be ACC for me. Well, I have to say that your your group of friends from school are incredibly lucky that they all took up they all took up sim racing <laughs> as a hobby. And then they were like, "Ah, oh, Nathan, uh, you've worked at McLaren and Quadron and Veloce. Fancy doing some some coaching? That must have been an incredible experience, a for them, but also for you to kind of experience it for the first time." all over again vicariously through them. What did you notice? Was it, There must have been some massive differences between when you started and when they started. Was, did anything stand out to you when you were going through that process? I think for a, a lot of them, all, weirdly enough, and I've said this quite a few times when I've coached, sometimes driving in real life actually does you um, a lot of harm when you go to driving in a sim because a lot of the habits that you've picked up when you drive in a real car, like feeding the wheel, you know, right foot braking, things like that. They just don't work in a sim as well as traditional sim habits. So first of all, you have to kind of break down those barriers and teach them the right way in a sim, you know, no movement of hands, nine and three at all times, braking with your left foot, minimal, you know, time between throttle and brake application, not going onto the throttle until you're ready to never come off it, you know, Jackie Stewart style. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just, just those little things, because a lot of them, you know, they, they had fundamentals they could drive. They knew, you know, the big F1 fans, uh, they knew what racing was and what the racing line was. It was just translating everything that they were thinking into actual inputs so they could get the cars around the circuit. And I think, you know, it, we've seen what people are like when they when they first get on a sim initially. It can be a bit of a, uh, a, bit of a mess. Crash. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but all of them now are genuinely decent. That you know they've all got obviously they've found their own kind of levels within you know the the, the group but you know one of them's even started karting now he's doing club 100 so you know from someone wow. who had done absolutely nothing before to racing the sim getting the bug 
He's raced uh, MR2s at Donington Park earlier this year. He's doing Club 100 weekly. So This is awesome, know, isn't it? Sim racing is essentially the, the, the gateway drug for this sort of thing. But I expect there was a gateway drug to sim racing. And I, I appreciate that this episode is about Nathan Tag rather than Nathan Tag's mates. But I have I've got one more question about your mates. What was it that, that, that kind of spurred them all on to, to do it? I have some theories, but what, what was it that, that, that made them decide, right, we're going to go for this in a big way because it's not something you can just pick up right you have to make a bit of a conscious decision because there's a, a barrier to entry in that you have to buy stuff to be able to do it so initially it would be i would be taking part in something or my team would be taking part in something and they'd either be watching it or they'd be watching me um and gradually you know it kind of just piqued their interest um you know this looks like a lot of fun like i said they're all racing fans initially so I think once you get that balance of them being genuine race fans and you know predominantly Formula One fans, but also having me, um, who can offer them advice on equipment or they can try my rig, things like that. Um, I think that kind of sped up that process pretty quickly. And obviously, you know, through COVID and and lockdowns and things like that, those those things naturally, you know, accelerated in in popularity. And I think. You know, all of those things coming together kind of created a perfect storm, and uh, you know they've, they've all not looked back. So, well, it's a beautiful storm. It's a beautiful storm, and they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna love it. And then there's gonna be times where they're gonna absolutely hate it. But that's that's sim racing, right? That's why we do it. Okay, so I wanna I wanna go through the journey between where your mates are now and where you were um, in terms of racing Forza and Gran Turismo to Quadrant and McLaren, like. How did you let, let's talk about that step right from managing F4H to and, and Lazarus, then moving up to Quadrant and McLaren? How did that step come about? So, obviously, I'd raced competitively for a long time, um, but I, I always wanted like I, I've loved gaming, like I said, through my dad since I was, I was young, I've always been interested in a gaming career, and initially. I thought it would be in something like games journalism. I thought that was a realistic end goal. Um, but as I competed more, I saw, you know, a, a gap where potentially if it can, you know, carried on trending in the direction of a, a Call of Duty or, you know, other games that were growing at the time. Because I was lucky enough to play some semi-professional Call of Duty as well. That's something that you might not find on the internet. But no, I, that's, that's very cool. I spent a year playing Call of Duty as well, which is almost got a lot to thank for the direction that my sim racing career went because I I saw an eSport that was kind of five years more accelerated and I knew mm. what sim racing could become. Um, and so I, I wasn't... You know, I'd, I'd, I'd done the traditional kind of steps. I'd finished school. I'd got an apprenticeship at Rolls-Royce. I was, you know building airplane engines for a living and I had what people would categorize as a good job you know and um it just wasn't it wasn't me it wasn't my you know destination in life or my calling in life um and I just wasn't satisfied with being a competitor being the end of my esports journey um and so you know once I was a part of F4H and and you know took over leadership of that team I I kind of started preparing for a best case scenario you know finding talent early was always the the key building a, a successful team so that you know on the off chance because back then no formula one teams were involved f1 esports didn't exist but i always kind of 
hoped and thought that that would become the case. And when those teams came looking, because they'd be looking for expertise within the sector, that they'd find me. Um, and very fortunately enough, that's what eventually happened. So, yeah, I think it was just almost a bit of blind hope mixed with some kind of playing the probabilities and odds a little bit and making sure that I was just in the right position at the right time. So who found you? Um, so weirdly enough, initially, um, when it was F4H, it was someone called Charlie, Charlie Watson uh, from Lazarus. Uh, and Lazarus entered sim racing extremely early for, you know, what I would class as a, a big organization. They're the, big, they're the biggest organization in Canada. Uh, and they wanted to get involved in the Forza Racing Championship and saw that F4H was basically a ready-made team, uh, essentially. And so they uh, acquired us in full. They, they uh, took on myself and um, my other team manager at the time, Tyler, and the entire roster. And we basically just ran F4H, but as Lazarus from that point. And is that the point at which you went full-time or were you full-time before? So at this time, um, I was working full-time uh, in the day. So I was doing a, a nine till five for Apple, working as a technician. Uh, and then I'd go home, I'd spend some time with my children, put them to bed and then go back to work for Lazarus uh, until about 3, 4 a.m., go to sleep, go back to work. So I was probably doing about 18, 19 hour days at that point, just trying to make the two things work and make sure that I wasn't kind of losing the opportunity in esports, but also kind of keeping my family afloat at the same time. Right. Okay. So, so, so during your time at Lazarus, you weren't able to work full time for Lazarus. That, that still had to be a bit of a side project. And presumably that reflects the fact that sim racing was still relatively young at that stage. Yeah. Yeah, exactly that. It was, you know, um, I was in the right place, but at the wrong time in terms of it being a, a job. Um, and I was doing a lot of the things that I do now, I guess, more stripped back. Um, but the, you know, the partners and, the, you know, the maturity, I guess, of the, the scene, it just wasn't there yet. It wasn't developed enough yet. And so things like FRC made it worthwhile for, for Lazarus because of the big prize pools and the prize money splits mm -hmm. that they could take from players. But it wasn't enough to justify full-time salaries for staff at that point. Yeah, that makes sense. And then how long were you at Lazarus for? Uh, so I spent just over a year there. Um, but I guess, you know, naturally we're leading on to moving towards Veloce. But I need to go back a little bit to kind of mm -hmm. explain <laughs> how that happened. Um, I'm trying to pick, yeah, I'm trying to piece together this journey because it's absolutely incredible when you read the headlines and I'm just really interested in I was here but then I got introduced to this person who introduced me to this person and then I ended up going to this event and then we you know, what I want to know I want to know how it happens because there'll be people listening who love sim racing who might be thinking of how do I you know how do I get into sim racing how do I make this my full-time job how do I get to live out my passion every day and I think it's one of those things where because sim racing is, is so new, it, it's networking is such a huge part of it. There's no, you know, there's not going to be a job board for these for these uh, for these roles. Not yet. Though hopefully there will be, but not yet. So so how did you how did you get here? So it was, I guess, a chance meeting that got me to, you know, working with the Formula One teams and Veloce initially. Um, so. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, I signed James Baldwin for F4H, um, and that was part of a you know a strategical decision that, that we came up with at the time that you know what happened if Forza was you know no longer successful, what happened if FRC didn't exist? 
You can't, you know, have one single point of failure in any successful business. You have to diversify. And so to do that, we started looking at things like Project Cars and Gran Turismo and uh, and, and other titles and quickly stumbled upon James uh, and Eamon Murphy um, and brought them in uh, into F4H. And very quickly, you know, James's development accelerated. Um, you know, I think that was, um, you know, a, a blessing because uh, F4H was becoming a, you know, a more kind of, renowned name within sim racing but also a curse because it meant that teams like veloce started taking notice of us pretty quickly um and um i think fast forward six months i think james was in the team for about six eight months if i remember correctly uh, and i was in a call with jamie uh, mclaurin who's the chief sporting officer at, at veloce discussing the terms of james's departure um and i remember being in that call and you know jamie won't mind me saying this um but i was extremely upset you know I I was losing someone who I knew had the potential to become a, a megastar within within the scene. But at the same time, never let Jamie know on that call that I, I was feeling that way. It was amicable, it was professional, it was you know, this you know, this person on the other side whilst they're, you know, damaging something that I've worked extremely hard to build, you never know what will happen in the future and you never know actually turned out being what happened because once um you know once i became unhappy with the direction that lazarus was going the first person that i reached out to was jamie and jamie offered me a job immediately well yeah i mean that just goes to show that you know you've got to you've always got to be thinking long term and if you if you'd kicked off in a in a phone call with somebody like that then you know it was never gonna serve you well in the long run um what was the uh, what was the driver to leave uh, Lazarus, or were you were you pulled to somewhere else, or was it more that you wanted to leave Lazarus? Um, I think the difficulty um, when you're working in a, a big organisation, um, sometimes the pri- you know your priorities and their priorities don't tally up. Um, Lazarus were heavily involved in the Fortnite World Cup; they were heavily involved in games like PUBG uh, and you know huge at the time tier one esports and you know you're trying to do things and you're presenting ideas to them but they're not capable at the time of executing on the strategies that you you know you have or uh, you know sometimes maybe not willing to listen Um, and I remember uh, we'd had a few chats about kind of strategy direction and, and where to go next with the team you know, Forza Racing Championship had happened and there was not really a lot on the horizon. Forza seemed to be a pretty dead title at the time. Um, and we weren't we weren't doing anything to, to capitalise and I felt kind of like my hands were tied. I mean, one of the last things that I did as manager at Lazarus is I went to my GM at the time and I mentioned to him that Marcel Kiefer was becoming a free agent at Racing Point um, and it got ignored. Uh, and so... You know, at, at that stage, you know, our, <clears throat> excuse me, our gateway maybe into entering F1 esports or, you know, having a strategical partnership with a Formula One team was, was dead, was dead and buried, you know. Um, and so at that point, I have to think about my own career, my own aspirations. And ultimately, it just didn't seem like Lazarus had the capacity to, to align with what I wanted to do. So uh, I think. Veloce naturally was somewhere way more focused on the space that I was 
you know an expert in and it was just a natural progression a natural kind of marriage so you so you reached out you you know you were like right Lazarus is not going the direction I want so you got home opened up your laptop and yeah I just sent Jamie a whatsapp message and just said look (laughs) this is the situation and you know I, I love what you guys are doing so if there's ever any opportunities not expecting anything to come around as quickly as it did um, that, then let me know. Uh, little, to, little did I know at the time that Veloce had just secured the McLaren account and they were looking for someone. So the timing was unbelievably perfect. Uh, so yeah, it, it just sometimes in, in life, I think you get lucky and I got extremely lucky at that point. That must have been an incredibly... I don't know, cathartic feeling when you kind of there on day one getting your, you know, your McLaren merch to start working. Like um, Matt Sten, uh, CEO of Track Racer, we had him on a few episodes ago and he used a phrase that I hadn't heard before, which was, um, he said, I don't often have time to stop and smell the flowers. By which I guess he means, that I, you know, I don't stop and think, oh, well, this, you know, this is nice. This has worked out well. But I think there's some value in it. You must have on, you know, when you when you got that job offer to go and work with with McLaren, you must have been like, ah, oh, it's paid off. I um, have been a Formula One fan since forever, for as long as I can remember. Um, for as long as they had the dodgy yellow graphics at the bottom of the screen, uh, <laughs> you know, watching drivers uh, like Damon Hill and, and Jacques Villeneuve in the 90s, um, kind of betraying how old I am. But, you know, for, for me... It is the ultimate dream job to work in esports and with Formula One teams. It is I've kind of achieved my career goals uh, um, already, and so I, I try and make sure, you know, whenever I'm in MK and you know in in insane places like the Hall of Champions with all the history there, or I've been to the MTC, I've been to you know, Brackley, I've been on the Mercedes Simulator. Um, I don't take those opportunities for granted at all. Um, I think it's important that you stop and just give yourself a few seconds to to appreciate things uh, so they don't become because like you said it's easy when when things become regular you know I'm, I go to MK quite often now um, and it's important to me that it doesn't lose its shine that it doesn't lose its uh, importance because I, I know that there are like you said earlier, hundreds of people that would love to be in uh, the position that I've been lucky enough to find myself in. So, yeah, I, I, I hope that I'm kind of a, a good, I guess, I don't, I don't know if role model is the right word, but I think s- someone that isn't taking uh, the opportunity I've got for granted anyway. Yeah, 100%. It's that phrase, you've got you've got to see it to be it, right? So if you're a massive gamer or you're a massive fan of esports or you love the business side of esports and you're like oh that, you know there's something i could do unless you can see somebody in that position it's difficult to imagine getting there yourself now mclaren had a bit of a twist right because there was quadrant thrown into the mix was that from day one or did that come about later so i remember jamie mentioning it in the initial call he was like we've got something really cool coming up with lando and i didn't know any more about it until a couple of months later um and i just you know for me i knew what the opportunity was and i knew that you know it was my first time this was my first full-time role within sim race and i was actually earning money to be involved in esports which was crazy to me um and so you know i tried to hit the ground running i tried to um you know impress as many people as possible 
work hard on some new, you know, ideas and inject some kind of, I guess, Nathan into the McLaren project. So, you know, it, it come from, you know, a very kind of competitive corporate, you know, Enzo and Bono were there, I believe, before we took over. And I just wanted it to be a bit more, a bit more open, a bit more relatable. So we did the McLaren uh, you know, Shadow Driver Academy. We kind of made made sure that there was a route forward for young drivers aspiring to be F1 esports drivers. And I think we were one of the first teams to do that. Um, and, you know, those little things and those those kind of little projects that I I was involved in and, and, and pioneered, I think kind of, I guess, made the right impression because I remember getting an email uh, a couple of months into the job saying, Nathan, here are some slides, uh, here are some presentations. Can you please uh, have a read through them and, uh, and um, I guess, prepare, do your homework because we've got a meeting in a couple of days where we'll explain further. And that was when I first heard about Quadrant. Um, you know, it was just ideas on a piece of paper. It was some, uh, you know, word marks, fonts and brand guidelines. The colours were there, you know, the, you know, the fluoro and the blacks and things that you see nowadays. Um, but other than that, it was a very rough idea of what it could potentially become. And I think, yeah, that that uh, wasn't what I was expecting, but I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed the challenge of Quadrant immensely. Well, this leads me on to a question that I was going to ask later, but I'm absolutely fascinated. I think it leads on quite nicely to what you're saying. Sim racing is new, right? Now, you've been doing it a long time but even that amount of time is a relatively short amount of time compared to most industries you know, gaming is is relatively new sim racing is, is even is niche and even newer so with that in mind do you ever feel like a sense of imposter syndrome like do you ever feel like you're walking that tightrope between breaking new ground and being totally in- innovative and then just making things up as you go along because no one's ever done it before yeah, I think that's a, a really good question. And you're you're 100 right. I think, you know, if you strip it all back, I'm a qualified engineer that just happened to be fast at racing games that ended up running racing teams and all of a sudden managing these crazy accounts. Um, and so I think a lot of the time I'm reliant on or have been reliant on learning a lot from the people around me very quickly. You know, I've I learned a lot. Mentioned it before, but I learned a huge amount from Jamie when it came to you know client relations and, and managing client expectations, workloads, things like that. Partners. Um, I obviously had the expertise of understanding what it was like to be a competitor in the space, and so that always gave me an advantage with kind of driver relations and understanding the stress and pressure they were going through. But on the flip side of that, as a team, you have goals and targets that you need to deliver for. For, for, for partners and, and bosses so yeah I think uh, uh, there have been multiple times where I've sometimes sat down with you know big to-do lists and projects that seemed completely insurmountable at the time but I'm a, a firm believer that if you feel ready for something you're not doing the right things you need to push yourself out of your comfort zone do things that genuinely frighten you not being you. brave enough yeah uh, and you know that's when you find out what you're made of you know, there's been some things in the past couple of years that I've genuinely, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast or not, but I've genuinely looked at them and I've just been like, shit, this is serious. Like, if I mess this up, this is, 
you know, serious and, you know, been very fortunate that in those situations for the most part I've, I've stepped up and delivered them. You know, I've, I've made mistakes. I've made, done things that, you know, I look back at them and I think you should have done this, you should have done that, but hindsight is great. And I think, you know, failure is where you learn the most. So I think don't ever well, be afraid to fail first and foremost, but like I said, do things that, that frighten you and, and, and push yourself. So I had a question actually about that, about how these how these organizations feel, right? So so they're all kind of, they're all big brands. They're all brands that everyone's heard of. Even if you're outside of, of esports, you'll have heard of most of these brands. Somebody says McLaren Shadow, you'd work, you'd work it out, right? Um, but brands are just personalities. And you've worked at a few now. So you've worked with a few of these personalities all in a similar space. And similar space. So, how did McLaren Shadow and Quadrant Veloce G2? How do those personalities feel different? What are the main ways they differ? Um, there are there there are just for the most part different end goals, different expectations, and different people. You know that you're dealing with for for each kind of account. So, McLaren was genuinely very open friendly it was always a good place to work lots of opportunities i did you know uh, I, I i i ran shadow esports but uh, you know on some days i'd be going to the mtc and i'd be acting alongside lando it was you know some very weird and cool opportunities um through mclaren um but then you know we ran the mercedes account last year as well and mercedes extremely super hyper competitive focused engineers in with drivers you know um their f1 esports uh, account and affairs are treated like the f1 team there is no compromise um and so yeah they're even two formula one teams whose kind of objectives are the same in winning the f1 esports series or being as successful as possible within that are polar opposites in terms of the way the opposite uh, they, they operate sorry you know, Red Bull, who I'm with nowadays, are somewhere in the middle. They want to break boundaries, give their drivers, um, you know, skills that they can take outside of Formula One esports. To use an overused phrase, give them wings um, and and turn them into, <laughs> you know, more rounded human Tick. beings. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, a good one for the bosses. Um, but uh, at the same time, want to win, uh, want to create cool content. Um, I think the the mantra that I heard a marketing exec use there is we do cool shit. It's a really nice. good, really good kind of baseline uh, to, to work. It's with. not a bad place to work, is it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think, you know, even those three who are in the same sector, very different. Um, and Quadrant, again, is, you know, a whole a whole different beast. That was about, you know, breaking stereotypes, being something completely different to something that's ever existed before. Um, you know, we have Lando as a focal point uh, and, you know, a huge draw in himself. But, you know, Quadrant was about creating a space that was for everyone. If you look at the creator list, it's incredibly diverse. It's people from different, um, you know, areas and different backgrounds playing different games all coming together to create one cohesive unit. And um, I think that's why it's worked so well and why it's... Um, you know, uh, an important thing to so many people. So I'm quite proud of what we achieved with Quadrant. But it was, yeah, way more freeform and and way more. You know, you'd you'd be sat in the office one day and you know you, you can 
I'd plan quadrant a year in advance. I'd always do a roadmap at the start of the year and I would have key targets that I would want to hit throughout the year. So we'd look at the F1 calendar and we'd go, okay, we want to hit America. We want to do Silverstone. We want to do something around Zanvoort. And then we'd build narratives towards that, depending on where the apparel drops were coming or, you know, where we were going to be at that time. Um, but there would be certain times where I'd be sat in the office and someone would come up to me and go, Nathan, what about Lando Norris only fans? And I'd go, hmm, <laughs> could we potentially go forward with this idea? And, you know, all of a sudden we're three hours into some crazy brainstorm about uh, tasteful Lando Norris only fans where he wears sweaters or something like that. Uh, and obviously a lot of those get left on the cutting room floor. But um, not that one, though. Not that one. Presumably, <laughs> yeah. that, presumably that one made the roadmap. That one did not ever go on a roadmap, no. Um, oh, but yeah. opportunity. Um, Lando, if you're listening, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> so Quadrant is different to what you've done in the past. It stood out to me a little bit on your, on your CV because it's not just sim racing. It's COD and Rocket League. So how much involvement did you have in the, 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 the COD and Rocket League and the non-sim racing aspects of Quadrant? Uh, so... I would like to say that when it came to Quadrant, uh, I guess Quadrant was my account first and foremost. I was the project manager or general manager, whatever way you want to say it. Uh, and so basically final sign off on anything that went through Quadrant went through myself and Jamie. And I think we identified quite early on that, you know, once Quad when Quadrant had launched, it was a lifestyle brand, it was apparel, it was gaming, but we needed some sort of competitive aspect um, and a really good way of bridging that was Call of Duty because Ethan, who's uh, you know the, the COD creator there, he isn't an out-and-out CDL you know player. He isn't a professional Call of Duty player on a, a roster or anything like that. He's a creator, but he's a competitive creator, so it's a bridge basically. Ethan is uh, an incredible personality if you want to leverage him for content. But he's also someone that starts to get a competitive audience interested in your brand. And so once you've had Ethan there for six months, then it's a more palatable, I guess, experience for people that are fans of the brand that all of a sudden you have a competitive team. Whereas if you go with that proposition six months earlier and say, look, all of a sudden we've got a pro Halo team, people are going to be like, this isn't Quadrant. This isn't what they're on about. Um, and so kind of that was, a, uh, I guess, quite a calculated move on, on our part to, mm. to make sure that it was something that a people would enjoy and, and buy into uh, but also uh, I guess to, to get to a, an endpoint or a destination that we had plotted out but how did it fit in with you like you personally now I know that you'd done um, the you said that you were semi semi pro cod player previously so you weren't you weren't new to cod and I expect you probably played rocket league too but you hadn't worked you hadn't worked in that in that space before. It was it was kind of new to you. Did you did you was it a bit of a, a distraction or were you just like hell yeah more stuff that I love that I get to work with? I think it's more the latter. I think the the majority of the kind of considerations that you have to make are similar regardless of whether it's a, an F one esports athlete or someone that's competing in Halo. You know they're going to want similar things from you. They're going to uh, require a similar kind of uh, management style things like that so i was already kind of i guess equipped to deal with those kind of things um the the, the title of the game really didn't didn't matter too much um and i think you know i guess for me i've been a a fan of esports for as long as i can remember i've been watching like i said i, I was 
playing Call of Duty, been watching Call of Duty and Halo events forever. So those things were always more interesting to me than they were kind of, I guess, a, a put off or something that I wanted to avoid. Yeah, I, I kind of, I kind of expected as, as much. Um, it, it's just, it seemed like a very kind of stark departure from your, you know, your your lane as I perceived it in your CV. But actually, now that I've come to know you a little bit more better through this podcast, um, it, it quite clearly sits perfectly within your brand. And I expect it's just something that you just picked up and just ran with uh, immediately. But it definitely falls within that category of what was the phrase? Uh, we do cool shit. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely on brand. We're going to do COD and Rocket League too. Like, brilliant. Yeah, why the hell not? Let's, Let's do, do it. it. Um, competitive esports. So sim racing is a competitive esports, um, and I kind of want to get an idea of what it feels like behind the scenes as a stakeholder within one of these competitive esports scenes. Now, you I might embarrass you here, but you cited a quote on your Twitter page, which was. A rising tide raises all ships. Yes. Is that how the pro esports teams operate? Are they all working together? Are they all collaborating? Is it a case of, you know, every now and then you meet up at the pub with, with all the other F1 esports teams and talk about how great everything is? Or is it very much like, you know, I'm hiding your setups and, and not giving away your training rosters and, you know, like Formula One style, put, putting blankets over the top of the cars so people can't see new developments? <laughs> so I guess... First of all, context on that on that quote. Um, I think a rising tide raises all ships. When you know the more successful PSGL is, the more eyes then watch F1 esports. The more eyes watch F1 esports, the more eyes watch PSGL. They're currently, um, I, I say they are. Um, uh, I have to be quite careful of how I phrase this, I guess. But um, there are certain people that are, I guess, afraid of um things taking their shine or you know they can't coexist when that's not that's not the case they can and and coexistence and su mutual support in those instances is beneficial to everyone <clears throat> yeah uh, um, this is this is absolute music to my ears for a couple of reasons one is I was in the Navy for 10 years. I was captain of a warship. I love the sea. So a rising tide raises all ships. I read that on your Twitter and I was like, <laughs> I like this guy. I like this guy. I like the naval uh, the naval reference. Um, but also it's it's the only way to work, I think. There's, you know, sim racing. It's niche now. It's going to grow. It's going to be huge. The more that, that we kind of collaborate as all these different brands together, the better off we're all going to be. The more people know about sim racing, the bigger our market is, right? So it it, it, it just makes so much sense. Yeah, fully agreed. I think, you know, there's there's times like, you know, you alluded to in your in, initial question, you know, we are running a competitive outfit and like Formula One, Red Bull and Mercedes aren't sharing anything. Um, we have to be uh, incredibly careful at protecting our, you know, processes, our um, property, our setups, our um, everything that we do as a competitive outfit is is locked down um and so uh, from from that perspective you know we're designed i guess with one purpose and that is to win but i think we're all kind of mature enough and, and understand enough to know that when something isn't working or something isn't right like for example this is a really good example uh, we did v10r very recently which is a gfinity series 
and uh, there was a an incident between Yano and Liam where Yano hit Liam on the camel straight uh, at Spa and basically it ended our race. Now this was put down to desync. It was uh, an issue that was beyond Yano's control, but we. So for those who don't know what desync is. Yeah, so desync basically is where the uh, the two clients, so the two drivers in this case, um, are in the same race, but they experience uh, a little bit of desynchronization in between what one sees and what the other sees. So for Liam, Yano was nowhere near him. For Yano, he was in the back of Liam. Um, in this instance, um, and the game finds somewhere in between, and that's how the crash happens. Um, but yeah, we we came out of that decision uh, extremely poorly because Liam had been taken out of the race, and yes, it wasn't Yano's fault, but at that point, we've still been taken out of the race, uh, and you know, we had a, a disagreement with the stewards. I was in uh, calls for about an hour after the the actual race had finished, um, and. I was in a call with Mercedes and I remember Gfinity came in and we're like, guys, we know it's Red Bull and Mercedes, but let's behave kind of thing, um, which I found funny at the time. Um, <laughs> but realistically, you know, Mercedes were as baffled as to the call as we were. They wanted to know the process behind the stewards thinking. They wanted to know that in the future, if something like this happened again, um, that the decision would be the right one. You know, we've we've lost that race through no fault of our own. And whilst the accident wasn't Yarno's fault, it doesn't mean that we have to suffer from the decision, which we did. We ended up losing that race. Um, and so in those situations, weirdly enough, when there are, uh, you know, mutual causes and mutual benefits, the teams do tend to unite. Maybe it takes poor stewarding decisions and us being angry at stewards for it to happen. But yeah, um, it, it can, it can, there can be a collaboration between sworn enemies and bitter rivals. Uh, <laughs> sworn enemies. Everybody needs, a, everybody needs a nemesis in their life. <laughs> Correct. Correct. But also, you know, beating your nemesis makes makes victory sweeter. I guess so. Yeah, that's the beauty of competition. I think. I don't think. Uh, you won't find many uncompetitive sim racers. I think very few people are uh, are firing up the sim to go for a drive people are going there to to win right and to be competitive and to have good racing i'm not necessarily to win but to, to have good racing that they could win that they can put their best foot forward in order to to win and then improve and iterate time after time after time that's why we do it because we're all competitive and esports drivers are particularly competitive i've found um <laughs> i would like to know what it's like working with them and managing them you must have had some issues where there's you know and, and, you know, no need to, to name names, but you must have had some issues where there's particular egos that you have to manage or rivalries that you have to manage or what, what's, what's it been like? Yeah, of course. And I think it's important in those moments to not say anything that you can't take back or um, act quickly. Because it's all streamed, right? Or, or, or rashly or anything like that. I mean, even in private conversations, because that can be, mm -hmm. you know, a relationship of killer. Course. You know, if, if a driver is you know, and it happens being particularly disrespectful or, you know, they've had something go against them or they don't agree with something that uh, has happened or you've done. Um, you know, it, it can even transpire that, you know, you have to take a step back, you know, act with a calm head and look at, you know, further down the line, uh, how this can affect the team or it can affect your relationship with the driver, or, you know, if they're right, if they're wrong. Um, I've been quite fortunate in, uh, the majority, the vast majority of drivers that I've worked with have been absolutely fine. 
Um, we've always had good relationships. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of that comes from the fact that I've competed myself. So you almost start with a mutual respect and, and knowing that, you know, I've in a lot of cases been where they are. Uh, and, and so, you know, you have that element of relatability immediately. But there are some times where, you know, uh, there, there are really difficult situations you have to navigate. We had, um, I, I won't mention the team, uh, but uh, a situation in the past where setups started getting leaked. Uh, we, mm. we we lost a setup uh, and, it, you know, it appeared in a, another team's hands and our driver that had made that setup found out. Um, and at that point, his level of trust in the rest of his teammates is completely gone. And it's very yeah. difficult to repair that, especially in a situation or a setting where you're asking him to actively share his work with other people. Um, and not only that, but you get situations where certain drivers are doing more work or less work, depending on how their workflow is or how they operate, um, which can cause inter-team friction. You're getting drivers that are going through dips uh, in form that are, you know, either overcompensating and trying too hard and being, you know, too much of a, a, a voice or a loud voice trying to get things their way when it's not for the benefit of the team. Or you get drivers that are having a dip and aren't addressing it and the rest of the team loses confidence in them. There's so many different situations that... I guess arise from inter-team politics, and I think honestly, a lot of it is just having seen it before and dealt with it before. Um, and how how do you like to approach it um, when you have when you have these the, these issues, or you have somebody in the team who's who's not happy, and they say, "Nathan, can I have a word?" and they tell you their their grievance. What's your what's your rule of thumb? How do you how do you approach these issues? I think every situation is different, first and foremost. Um, so you have to kind of judge it on his merits, and I think. For me, if I'm running a McLaren or a, a Red Bull or whoever it is, the the team is always the end goal. What what benefits the team most from the decision that I'm about to make? Um, and I've always had uh, an open door policy. So in most cases, the the issues, the small issues that begin, don't fester because we address them early enough. So, you know, for example. If we're taking part in a, a series at the moment like PSGL, uh, we will debrief after every round. So there is no room there for anything that happens during a race. If there's inter-team rivalry or if someone doesn't believe that someone's pulling their weight or anything like that, there's no there's no room for that to get out of control. Um, I think those kind of things help. I think the majority of conflict resolution is actually making sure that it never gets to a point where it needs to be resolved in the first place right and and how much uh how much are you involved during the race have you ever had to call team orders um uh, during one of these races yep uh yep it happens quite often um i think naturally because of my role as a driver in the past i kind of get these coaching and engineering roles uh kind of kind of lumped in but we've made a, a conscious decision this year to bring in an actual uh engineer for for the red bull side of things so uh a lot of that will be uh taken off my plate this year or i will have less of the um accountability there but yeah you, you have to look at the race from kind of a a top-down point of view and it's the same with the conflict stuff the, the the end result of the team matters the most if there are difficult decisions you have to make them and you have to make them with authority 
no hesitations because drivers can sense that and they will then come back to you. So if there's a certain, you know, situation where, um, you know, you want to pit on lap 15 for an undercut and you make that strategy call and then the driver then starts saying, I don't think that's the right idea. I don't think that's the right idea. If you then say, okay, let's go with what you think, then that happens every time. Whereas if you say, no, lap 15, we've gone through this. This is the strategy. Let's box this lap. You live and die by those decisions. You can have them out in the debrief afterwards. And if you get them wrong, believe me, you're in for it. The drivers will let you know. (laughs) But, uh, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where you, you have to have the authority or assertiveness. I think authority is the wrong word because I don't really operate like that as a manager in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, have I guess the or be assertive enough to make those decisions and stand by them. Yeah, it, it's got to be. Um, it's got to be tough, actually, in, in exactly the same way as it would be tough for the the you know the motorsport teams when they have issues on track and it's you know it's televised and everybody's watching. Sim racing is kind of similar, right? You might not have the millions, but actually you have some very very dedicated fans, like you know tens or hundreds of thousands uh, during COVID, et cetera, watching these races who are going to care about every decision that's made. And you're there in the background kind of contributing towards the success or failure of these teams. Albeit, you know, you might be in the background. You must feel pressure for these races, right? Yeah, of course. And I think the important thing for, I guess, people to to understand and know from a, an outside perspective is nobody wants to win more than, you know, the team and the drivers we live and breathe it and the the amount of work that goes in behind the scenes is you know stratospheric it's more than you can possibly imagine these esports teams are putting in a, a huge amount of resource and practice and time and you know almost operating like sister teams to formula 1 teams in the way that we structure things and the way that you know uh, we we approach an F1 esports season, so you know we're we're not here to lose. We put in far too much effort and time yeah. and and uh, you know blood, sweat, and tears to to do that. But yeah, you're right. It it can sometimes, you know, like I said, the, the drivers first and foremost are going to be the ones banging down you know doors trying to find out you know where we went wrong and things like that because we're our who own made worst that decision? Critics. Yeah, we're our own worst critics. <laughs> but I think you know it's important that. You know, when we all sit down in these debriefs, like I said earlier, that we are one unit, we are one team that all has the same end goal. You know, it doesn't benefit me if we lose; I'll lose my job. So, um, how can right, we improve yeah. next time? And and you know, how do we make sure the same mistakes don't repeat? That's that's the important thing. Because everyone makes mistakes. We're not going to get everything right and win every race, but let's you know, live life with an improvement mindset. I guess. What can we do better? Yeah, I, I love that. And actually, with esports, it's kind of it's almost in a strange way purer than motorsports in that you are in equal machinery, right? So you know, the, the, the it's not like a, an actual F one where we have a, a Williams team down the back or you know an Alfa Romeo who you know they're not expected to win in esports. There, you don't have that disparity between machinery. So everybody could win everybody has the same chance to win and by everybody i don't necessarily mean the drivers i mean the teams because actually if you're a driver for a team that isn't as well resourced and you're not gonna be able to put in the same amount of practice you're not going to have the same amount of engineering uh, resource put into your to your setups etc then yeah perhaps you as a driver you couldn't be expected to to perform 
um, with the, the guys up front. But actually, as a team, everybody has the same chance to win. So you have fewer excuses, right? You can't say, oh, well, you know, of course, of course they didn't win because we're in a slower car. You would think that, but then if you look at Twitter after races, there are definitely uh, <laughs> definitely always some excuses flying around. That's just racing drivers for you. That's uh, that's the same whether it's the virtual or the real world. Um, but yeah, I think you know if you look at F1 esports as a perfect example uh, of who's won races over the course of the you know the four years that it's been been around. Pretty much every team's won a race. Every team's had success, and I think that's the cool thing about it. You, you can be a supporter. That's the beauty of, of it. Yeah, you can be a supporter of any of the teams. Uh, and and have a realistic chance in in races of of having su- uh, success or you know supporting a successful team. So it is really so, all down to the work that we do as teams. And you know you've seen how close the F1 esports fields are. Qualifying is it's incredible, it's incredible. Competitive. So talking of success, so you've managed a number of teams, you've managed dozens of drivers, hundreds of races. Is there one that stands out as your proudest moment? That that is a a very very good question. Um, I think honestly, as crazy as it sounds, going all the way back to F4H when it was kind of almost its most pure, we weren't win, you know we weren't winning obscene amounts of money that there wasn't any money. Um, but we were still doing the same thing that we do nowadays, the 24 hour races, the, the long stints, the, the insane shifts and camaraderie between teammates. And, you know, we won a, a huge amount back then, uh, you know, 24 hour enduros at the Nürburgring, Le Mans. Those are the ones that stick with me because, uh, you know, as much as now it's more kind of, I guess, business-like there's more behind it, but then it was, just four mates who had a common goal running off some really dodgy excel spreadsheets waking each other up during the night going to each other's houses they're the ones that stick with me i think as as experiences i think obviously you can be proud of a kind of isolated achievements you know won plenty within within esports but it's it's those ones that stick with me i think that's yeah i mean that's beautiful that there's some huge similarities there with um I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and i listen to a lot of f1 podcasts and i really enjoy the beyond the grid um series where it's just the one-on-one they interview people in, in formula one people drivers and also people behind the scenes um and i have noticed a trend that whenever a driver is asked about their their favorite moment very often they'll recite a karting race or a karting event um, and they say the same thing it was pure racing we were there to win as a you know with with no other kind of commercial pressures and it's really interesting actually because i i had actually expected that it might be the opposite in sim racing because it's so new and with and you know sim racing is almost trying to prove itself it might have been one of the big f1 esports events but it's kind of beautiful to hear you say oh actually it was the it was the forza events that we used to do it was four mates going around each other's house to to you know to do a le mans or, or whatever yeah yeah i think I, I remember exactly the same with the you know at center i think got asked who his you know hardest rival ever was and he mentioned someone in karting that you know no one had ever heard no of. one's ever heard of <laughs> yeah um yeah but i think it's the same they're the, they're the ones i think that give you the most joy you know that that you're doing it i guess for all the right reasons there's no you know financial motivation or, or anything like that it's just fun um and so yeah they're, they're the ones that stick with me the most 
Nice. Well, Nathan, I've taken up a lot of your time today and quite clearly you're incredibly busy. Um, <laughs> so thank you. I've got one, one final question. Um, if you can, look ahead to the world of sim racing in five years' time. Imagine it in your head. What's the biggest difference from how it looks today? I've always been a, a believer that sim racing, whilst we have loads of similarities with real world racing, uh, and for the most part, you know, those partnerships and collaborations are great. I love things like F1 esports. We need to stand on our own two feet as an esport in, in general and, and not be afraid to do things that traditional motorsports just can't get away with. You know, you know Formula One are trying things with sprint races. We do reverse grids in F2 and things like that. We have an opportunity to do things that are impossible in the real world. Things like V10R, for example, where we're racing V10s that you very rarely see on a track now. We need to embrace more things like that. We need to, um, I guess, find our own niche because, you know, if you look at FIFA or, or football as a perfect example, FIFA esports can only, I think, get so big until, you know, there's a crossover point where people would just prefer to watch normal football. And I'm keen to avoid falling into the same trap with racing esports because there are certain things that just make racing more appealing to viewers. You know, the jeopardy of it, the drivers, the personalities. At the moment, we don't do a good enough job of telling the stories around the people that are involved in racing esports. And unless you're extremely invested, then you won't know enough about them. Um, and so, you know, in five years' time, I hope that we're doing more things for ourselves um, that, you know, racing esports isn't seen as the, the the younger brother or the, the you know the annoying brother of traditional racing um and that we're filling out arenas like csgos and league of legends are and people want to come and watch us race because they want to watch us race yeah and you know from my point of view based on the the passion and expertise and intense commitment to sim racing from all of the guests that we've had on sim sunday so far albeit there's only been seven uh i am 100 percent confident 100 percent confident that we'll get there so nathan thank you very much for your time i really really appreciate it and uh we'll chat soon yeah you're welcome i've absolutely enjoyed it thank you so hey this is chris from gridfinder thanks for listening to the sim sunday's podcast head on over to gridfinder.com to find your spot on the grid and join sim racing leagues for all your favorite games just enter your preferred game, car of choice, then let us know if you'd like to race PC, Xbox, or PlayStation, and we'll give you a list of actively recruiting leagues for you to join. And if you're a league owner, post your league on GridFinder so that you run with a full grid for every race. If you're looking to upgrade your sim rig, visit the episode sponsor TrackRacer at TrackRacer.com. Thanks for being here.